0: Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6 as we come back this morning to our study of the Lord's prayer, the model prayer the Lord gives to us in this great passage. Each one of us have felt the pain and distress of broken or strained relationships in our lives. Sometimes the breach happens quite suddenly with some uh, plain and obvious offense or attack that comes from a loved one or from an acquaintance. Other times it happens more gradually, more subtly, when the slights, when the offenses, uh, when the uh, selfishness that tears away at the fabric of our relationship is more veiled uh, and covert, but whether it is major flare-ups or just the slow frosting of relationships, we've all felt the sting of it. We've all struggled with it. We've all sort of asked ourselves the questions along the way, how did things get to where they are and is there anything that can be done to repair? No relationship can really flourish unless it learns how to deal with those kinds of breaches. Breaches a commitment to deal with them, and to deal with them the right way. And if you're not committed to dealing with those things, or you don't know how to deal with those things, they will eventually build up and kill any relationship. They will affect its closeness, its sense of intimacy and nearness, so that eventually, while you may have relationship in name, you don't have it in spirit. Well, that's true certainly in human relationships. It's just as true in your relationship with God. Your relationship with God cannot flourish without a commitment to dealing with the sins and offenses that can slowly and daily build up between you and your Heavenly Father. They can affect your sense of closeness to God. They can create a sense of distance, a sense of coldness. They can even make you begin to question god 's concern and care. This is why, in our passage this morning, Jesus includes uh, uh, an instruction, you might say in this model prayer for us, where he teaches us to regularly ask God for forgiveness. You can see it there at the end of the ch- prayer and Beginning in verse 12, where Jesus tells us to pray, Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, just reading that section generates a lot of questions in your mind, or they ought to generate a lot of questions. But before we sort of get into even trying to answer some of that, let's just briefly remind ourselves uh, how we got here or remind us uh, this model prayer and uh, how we are uh, uh, brought to this point in Jesus' example. This is His... his, uh, Response, if you will, to all of the distortions of false prayer, of prayer and false religion, of pagan prayer. He's giving this as an example of what meaningful and effective prayer looks like in the daily life of a disciple. And as we've seen in the last several weeks, it includes a number of elements that make prayer effective. Beginning right uh, at the beginning with a focus, not on our problems and needs first and foremost but on God's character and His glory. And we see that in verse 9 where we begin with a focus on relationship, addressing God as our Father. That relationship, as we saw, is balanced with a sense of reverence as we pray, hallowed be Your name. And the reverence is coupled with hope as we pray for God to come and establish His kingdom here on earth with all of its righteousness and justice and equity, and everything that is promised in that kingdom. And the thoughts of God's kingdom and its perfections are to be matched by submission in your present circumstances. As we pray to God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that submission goes hand in hand with dependence. As Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. All that brings us now to this sixth element of effective prayer, which is the element, we might say, of repentance. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, don't get caught up on the word debt as some people do. The word debt is simply a word in Greek for obligation, whether it is a financial obligation where you must pay someone back financially for something, or whether it is a moral or a spiritual obligation where you have to make up for some wrong or some deficiency. It's used both ways in the Greek, as is, by the way, the word forgiveness. Uh, Forgiveness is used in a moral and spiritual sense, and it's used also in a financial sense, even the same way we do today. We talk about loan forgiveness or debt forgiveness. Or you have the same kind, of, uh, same kind of flexibility in the terms here. They can be used in financial uh, obligations, but they're used as much, if not more, in spiritual and moral obligations, and that's what Jesus has in mind here. The more significant question about this passage isn't the particular terms or the use of the word debt. The more significant question is a theological question. Do we actually need to ask for God's forgiveness every day? I mean, doesn't the Bible teach that we're already forgiven in Christ? Aren't all of my sins already forgiven through the blood of Christ, and isn't that secured for me for all eternity? And if that's the case, why do I need to ask for forgiveness? Aren't those things contradictory, someone might think? Well, first off, we can begin by affirming the truth that God does grant forgiveness from our sins once and for all through the cross of Christ. Theologians call this judicial forgiveness because it deals with our relationship to God as our judge. And it's the greatest need of every person born in this world. They're born under God's wrath, they're born under God's judgment, we would say. And Scripture says, uh, while we are in this world as a creation of God, we are under His wa- wrath, or His wrath abides on us, John 3 says, meaning that apart from Christ, Every one of us face certain wrath upon death. When we, when we encounter God, we will face a judgment for all of our sins. In fact, we will face a judgment for the sins of Adam as well because of the judgment that was brought on us through his representation. So we are, we are doubly cursed, if you will, we're cursed because we were born as a part of a cursed race, and we're, bo- we're cursed because of our own uh, uh, replication of that same kind of rebellion. Of course, by the gospel, we're told that those who place their trust in Jesus Christ, God provides forgiveness. Forgiveness from that wrath and forgiveness from that condemnation. This is judicial forgiveness. And Hebrews talks about it, Hebrews 10. It says, He, that is Jesus Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So you hear the emphasis here. First of all, on the fact that he offered a single sacrifice, that single sacrifice covered all sins for all time, and it renders you and I perfect. He perfected us by that sacrifice. What does all that mean? What it means is that in a legal and judicial sense, When you accept Christ and his work on the cross, uh, when you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, that God declares you to be perfect in a judicial sense, in a legal sense. Not as if you are perfect, not as if you are never going to stumble or fall again, but God makes a declaration about your about your guilt and about your condemnation. He wipes it all away so that for all time, judicially, legally, you can stand before God and be considered by Him perfect, faultless, guiltless, uncondemned. All the stain, all of the guilt and all of the fear of God's wrath and judgment that goes with it is all wiped away by that. God's attitude changes from an attitude of wrath to an attitude of mercy. For those who are in Christ, they no longer live under the wrath of God. They no longer fear the wrath of God. They're daily recipients of of his mercy, as much as a father shows his love to his children, God's relationship now has changed for us from being one where he is our judge and in that sense our enemy to one where he is our father and he is our supporter, our defender. Now, not only does God's, uh, God provide forgiveness, but... He makes the promise that we are to never be subjected again to the fear of wrath. That freedom is celebrated in Scripture over and over and over again. It's supposed to be something that we meditate on and that we cherish and relish and that we guard. Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. And you can find statements like that over and over again throughout Scripture this reiteration that we are absolutely free from any condemnation, absolutely free from the bondage of fear to the wrath of God, and that is to be something that we are to protect and we are to guard, as I said. Paul talks about it in. Colossians over and over again warning us to never let anyone defraud us of the prize of this kind of standing that has been freely given to us in Christ. Let no one defraud us of the prize of having been rooted and built up and established in Christ, he says. And we're to constantly be coming back to that. Now all of that... While being true, all of that has led some Christians to therefore conclude that we are to never, ever entertain the idea of asking God for forgiveness ever again. It's a one-time moment. You come to Christ, you ask Him for forgiveness, and then after that, any thoughts of guilt, any thoughts of, uh, 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 of shame over your behavior, any of those thoughts are untrue thoughts. They're the thoughts that are, be, that are to be put out of your mind or suppressed in some way or denied in some way. When you're thinking that way, they would say you're not thinking biblically anymore. People who take this particular view believe that it is always wrong. It's a distortion for a Christian to ever feel ashamed, or a sense of guilt over their behavior. They would question the very idea of a Christian ever asking for forgiveness. They would say that is to question the promises of God, that is to question the result of the cross of Christ. Of course, the problem with that is that the Bible teaches us that as Christians, we should continually seek the mercy and forgiveness of God. There are a number of passages that speak about this kind of forgiveness within our relationship with God. Even, even once we've passed out of a relationship of enmity with God to a relationship of, uh, of adoption, even when we move from being God's enemy to Him being our Father, there are a number of passages where we're pictured as God's true children and yet still commanded to seek forgiveness or mercy. Luke 6:36. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned, it says. Mark 11, verse 25, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who's in heaven will also forgive your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who's in heaven forgive your transgressions. And of course, here in Matthew 6, yet another one, very clearly Jesus teaching here this model prayer for believers for his disciples clearly instructing us that as a regular pattern of our life, we should be seeking the forgiveness of God. So, how do we make sense of all this? I mean, if the scripture celebrates the forgiveness of Christ that, that, that comes to us by the cross, if it celebrates the freedom that we have from God's wrath, if it tells us that there's no more condemnation from God, how do we, how do we bring that together and bridge that with these passages that are telling us to ask for forgiveness from God. Well, the key is that we have to understand the distinction between judicial forgiveness and what we call parental forgiveness. Judicial forgiveness and parental forgiveness. Because once you receive the judicial forgiveness from God, that one time declaration that according to His law, you are no longer eternally condemned in your sins, you're promised eternal salvation, you're promised heaven and all of its glories. Once you receive that judicial forgiveness, you have to understand that your intimacy and your nearness and, uh, your Sort of uh, 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 the quality of your relationship with God is still affected on a day-to-day basis by your offenses and consequently the parental forgiveness that God can give or will give to us when we ask. Another way to say that is while our sins today and in the future don't don't affect our standing with God, they do affect Our joy in Him. They affect our connectedness to Him. They affect our intimacy with Him. So much the same way that in any other relationship, when we allow little offenses to build up, when we don't deal with those things on a regular basis... When we, when we sweep the things under the carpet, we make excuses or we fail to confess or whatever it might be. We may still be in sort of a legal sense. We may still be in relationship with someone, but the relationship itself in terms of its intimacy, has deteriorated. The closeness, the nearness, the joy, the comfort, all of those things that ought to be a part of every meaningful relationship are dampened and deadened because we're not dealing with the offenses that come between us. We understand all that naturally from those natural relationships. If you're a parent, you understand this with your children. If you're a child, you may understand this with your parents that there are things that come sometimes between you that don't, don't render you any less their child legally and relationally. They're still your father and mother. Legally and relationally, your child is still your child. But until the two of you deal with and discuss in a proper way the sin or the disobedience that hinders your relationship, the offenses that may have come, it will always hamper the level of nearness, the level of closeness and affection that you feel between one another. As a parent from your side, there might be disappointment, distrust, burden and concern, personal, emotional pain if you've been hurt, or whatever it is, all of that stuff Builds up until it is dealt with by way of confession and by way of forgiveness. Even from the offending person whether it's a child or a spouse or whatever it might be even from their side the guilt of what they've done whether they're honest with it or not can build up in their heart and mind can make them recoil from even wanting to be around you because just to be around you reminds them of the brokenness reminds them of the offense and pricks their conscience and so in some ways the guilt actually will drive you further and further away, wanting you, wanting to cause, uh, making you, I should say, want to spend less and less time with the person you have offended. Same th- sort of thing can happen in your relationship with God. You have not been acting in accordance with His Word. You have not been submitting your life and your heart and your desires to God. And you know it, and you, you've known it for a long time. You noticed it when it began to happen weeks ago, months ago, maybe even years ago. And you started to retract in your devotion and your commitment to God, to time in His Word, to time in prayer, to time serving Him, to evangelizing and talking to other people about God. Because all of those things just remind you of the kind of affliction in your conscience. And so in order to have some sort of relief, you just draw back until your conscience begins to be soothed, really by the distance, not by the repair that needs to happen. Intimacy is affected even if the relationship is not formally broken All of that paradigm that happens both in natural relationships and in God's relationship with us all drive us to the same place, to the need for forgiveness. And this is why Jesus tells us to pray, forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. This is something that ought to be a daily part of your prayer life. It ought to be something where you're confessing areas of resistance and areas of rebellion and areas of neglect. And of course, remembering the loving kindness of our God who already has provided for us His mercy through Christ and the judicial forgiveness that He so freely poured out to us. We have every confidence That when we do confess our sins to Him, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. David provides a beautiful picture of this. If you have your Bibles, you can look with me over to Psalm 32, one of the great Psalms on this issue that you'll find in the Scripture. In fact, one of the great passages you'll find, Psalm 32 David celebrates the judicial forgiveness of God. He said, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. So he's celebrating the blessedness of God's forgiveness. He's tasted it. He's understood it. He's experienced it as God has granted him forgiveness and he has reconciled to God through that. But then you'll notice in the day-to-day life of David, he speaks about the emotional and spiritual effect of the need for parental forgiveness. He says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. This is what we feel. This is the drain, the daily drain that we feel in our heart and mind when we're drifting further and further away from Christ. Similar to the drain we have when we're drifting away from loved ones, but here even magnified because this is our relationship with our Savior and with our God. We feel it more difficult to even function and to get through the next day. David said, this is the way I felt. I felt like I was just being absolutely zapped of all purpose in life and all energy to keep going on. He says in verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. David is saying, don't follow the pathway I followed. Don't allow yourself to get down that pathway where you're absolutely Absolutely drained of all vitality. Don't let it get that far. Seek the Lord, he says. David knew the forgiveness of God. Thankfully, the judicial forgiveness of God. He knew the mercy of God. And yet, he had forgotten the ongoing need to ask God for parental forgiveness daily. Coming to Christ, receiving this ju- judicial forgiveness, doesn't dispense with the sensitivity that we have in our conscience and mind towards sin. In fact, if anything, it increases it. We are renewed in our heart and mind because of regeneration. When we, be- uh, when we come to God for forgiveness, judicial forgiveness, He makes us new creatures in Christ. He puts His Spirit within us. The mind of Christ comes and takes up residence within us. We who were once dead to, in trespasses and sins now are alive in Christ and therefore our consciences are renewed and we're more sensitive to sin than we were before. So far from, uh, far from eliminating the problem of daily guilt, we're, we're, we're heightened to it. We're sensitized to it. And we have to have a way of dealing with that on a regular basis. You remember Jesus beautifully pictured this in the Last Supper when his disciples were all seated around the table and we're told he takes a basin and a towel and fills the basin with water and begins to wash the feet of his disciples. And Peter, you remember in John 13, objects. He says, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Peter, hearing that, thinks that Jesus is talking about judicial forgiveness. And he says, well, if that's the case, he says, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. He's saying, well, just give me a whole bath then, if that's what you're talking about. Jesus replied, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, he says to Peter. It's interesting that he's giving this sort of visual illustration to Peter right before he gives the prediction in the next few verses to Peter that you are going to deny me this night. He understands that Peter is a believer. He understands that Peter has been cleansed from his sins in a judicial sense. But he also understands that Peter is about to, to head into one of the seasons where he will stumble like he has never stumbled before. Where he will question himself, where he might even question the love of God more than he had ever questioned the love of God. And he needed a sound understanding of how to deal with that daily guilt of his sin and his failures and his falling away. And so he's telling him, you need to be daily cleansed in your feet, the feet symbolizing sort of the daily contamination of sin that we experience when we walk through life. Doesn't make us entirely dirty. Cannot permanently sever our relationship with Christ. But the practical purification is necessary every day. Now once we realize this, then the prayer that Jesus talks about here, this prayer of asking forgiveness becomes a natural part of our life. And this is important. Jesus even goes on down in verse 14 and 15 to give a further explanation of this. It's the only element of the prayer that he expands on and explains. You'll see down in verse 14, he says, For if you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Now, this is a shocking statement for a lot of people because Jesus Jesus is making forgiveness conditional. And we're told that God's grace and God's mercy, we're told that the gospel, that our salvation is unconditional. But what he's talking about here is not judicial forgiveness. What he's talking about here is parental forgiveness. And what he's saying is that this parental forgiveness is contingent on whether or not you are forgiving toward other people. Jesus' point is, this parental forgiveness from God is dependent on your willingness to show mercy toward others. Or another way to understand that is, a failure and refusal for you to forgive others is a sure sign of your failure and refusal to understand your own sin. Because daily confession, daily seeking of forgiveness, requires a daily humbling of yourself before God. It requires a daily recognition of the kind of punishment that you deserve because of your sin. It requires a daily awareness of your need for the mercy of God. And it requires a daily recognition of how abundant that mercy is. A person who shows no mercy to others then understands, or I should say reflects that they don't understand the mercy they have received. You have to humble yourself every day. That's what this is all about. And that humility has its effect on you. You go to God and you confess not only the deeds that you've done, but you confess what you know that you deserve, Lord, I know, you know, this is, this is what I've done. I've, I deserve to lose this. I deserve to suffer this. I deserve to be cast out in this way. I deserve to be ridiculed in this way. I don't deserve this relationship. I don't deserve this job. I don't deserve this, you know, blessing. I don't deserve this life. I don't deserve all these things. But I understand that you're a God full of mercy. That's what confession is, like David says in in Psalm 51, when he says, against you and you only have I sinned, so that you are blameless when you speak and upright when you judge. Meaning, to, uh, he's saying to God, God, when you judge me, if you were to take whatever it is away from me, if you were to deprive me of this for the rest of my days, I couldn't be upset with you. You would be blameless. You would be right. You would be justified. That's what confession is. And yet, David also knows he can turn to God and plead with God for mercy to cleanse him. You go through that, and then you have someone who has sinned against you. And no matter what the judgment is that you think they deserve, no matter what the punishment is, no matter what the retribution is, the consequences are, whatever you want to call it, Understanding that God has helped you escape or has caused you to not have to suffer whatever the consequences are of your sin. It's inconceivable that you would then hold someone else to that same sort of punishment. The person who shows no mercy to others, the person who demands for them to suffer Whatever kind of consequences when they've wronged you as a person whose heart has not yet humbly recognized their need for God's mercy. Or you might think about it this way. Since we naturally see the sins of other people in proportion to our own sin. When we minimize the mercy that we show toward others. It's a strong indication that we have minimized the mercy that we sense we need from God. Or you could say it yet another way. When you are daily maximizing, magnifying in your heart and mind the mercy of God because you're daily rehearsing the sins of God, then mercy begins to permeate your entire life in relationship to everyone around you. Now here's the beautiful thing is that that begins to repair your relationship to God. When the breach happens, when it begins to slide and you spend time really confessing, really contemplating and really pleading for the mercy of God in your life, really Letting that sink in just how much mercy you really need. When you really let that happen on a daily basis, it repairs your relationship with God. No matter how long you have strayed, no matter how far you have gone, you can be brought back in a moment because of the abundant mercy of God. At the same time, that, ty- that type of prayer then begins to repair the relationship with others. As you begin to realize how unmerciful you have been, you begin to realize how unforgiving you have been. When you have spent so much time now pleading for God's mercy on your face, you begin to realize just how insensitive you've been to the need for mercy for others. So this Daily prayer that Jesus gives to us here is absolutely vital. It provides strong protection in your closeness of relationship with God. And at the same time, by filling us with a fresh sense of God's mercy every day, it provides a foundation of mercy that guards and protects all other relationships. Now, we'll have more time to think about this more deeply in a few weeks when we come back and dive into Matthew chapter 7 as Jesus sort of unpacks this same standard there. But we still have one more element in this model prayer to get through and I want to look at it in the rest of our time this morning in verse 13. And we could call it a, a seventh element here, the element of deliverance. As Jesus teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation... But deliver us from evil. Now, here's another element of prayer that, when you think about it, generates a lot of questions. The biggest question is Does God actually lead us into temptation? Is He actually out to do that on a daily basis? Do we actually have to ask Him not to do that, implying that He's planning to do that? Or we could simplify it by simply saying Does God tempt us? Well, the answer to that is given plainly in the book of James, James chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you can look over there with me. James 1, 13. James, the half-brother of the Lord, has so many areas that intersect with the Sermon on the Mount. This is certainly one of them. But he states the answer clearly here in verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. So James pictures someone who's in the midst of a struggle or a trial of some sort. They're feeling pulled toward temptation on the verge of yielding. And as a defense, if you will, as they begin to fall, they convince themselves, I'm being tempted by God. God's doing this to me. This is a natural tendency. We always want to find someone else to blame for our issues. And so we blame God among others or we blame the way God has made us or the situation God has put us in that is unwinnable or whatever it might be. We begin to believe that we have been naturally disposed to something, that we have a certain temperament or a certain personality, or we're inclined or we're built or we're chemically made up a certain way that has made us vulnerable, that we almost have to give in because we can't thwart God. God has set us up to fall and to falter. But regardless of how you think, James makes it very very clear. God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. There are two parts to that. The, the first part explains the second. The first part says God cannot be tempted with evil. It's an impossibility. His, his character is so pure. His holiness is so magnanimous. It would make it impossible for him to be tempted in evil. Uh, tempted towards sin. Or another way to say that is that evil and wickedness and sin have absolutely no appeal to God. There's nothing in his character for which uh, that stuff could resonate. He's not drawn to it. He's not fascinated by it. He finds no pleasure in it. There's no attraction for him in any way for anything that is sinful. It utterly repulses him. Everywhere you look in Scripture, speaking about God's holy character, it talks about this. His eyes are too pure to look on evil. This is his character. He wouldn't go near sin. He wouldn't even consider it. It absolutely has no draw. And so there's no way that it could ever infiltrate his character because it repulses him. So, therefore, it would be impossible, then, for God to contemplate using sin or tempting someone to sin. That would be a repugnant thought for God because of his own attitude towards sin. The idea of ever generating a single act of sin is repulsive to God. It's not as if he would just be indifferent. He hates it in every form, in every instance. And he would have no part in contributing to anyone ever committing an act of sin. So God cannot be tempted with evil and therefore he himself himself tempts no one to evil. Now, you might have thought about God differently. You may have thought about God as one who sends temptations your way, maybe to see if he can trick you or cause you to stumble or whatever it might be, that somehow he's dangling things in front of you to find out if you really love him. But James says that's not how God operates. In fact, he goes on to explain exactly how temptation and sin operate. In verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So if there's a source of blame, it's not outside of yourself. If there's a source of blame, it is inside yourself. You're tempted, he says. Temptation comes from your own desire. It originates from something in you. All of it all of it sort of tracing its origin back to those desires, which is a tremendous insight, really, in terms of battling temptation and having victory over sin because if you want to change the outcome of your trials and temptations, if you will, you have to begin on the inside, not on the outside. You have to begin at the level of desire, And you do that by the power of God, by uh, by asking God for His grace so that you can align, or we might even say realign, those desires with God or yield those desires to God. This is what Paul's getting at in Romans 12 when he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you may test Excuse me, so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So you're continually molding your inner man, you're continually molding those desires to God's desires. You're continually submitting those desires to what glorifies Him and what honors Him. You're continually renewing that inner man and letting God transform it. So you set your mind on those things above, not on the things of the earth. James goes on to tell us what happens when you don't do that. Verse 15, When desire, the desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. So he gives us a kind of a genealogy of sin here. It's heritage, if you will. It begins with a desire that is conceived. He uses this idea of sort of... Conception, giving place to birth, and then birth, growing up. All of this describing how sin accomplishes what it accomplishes in our life. The sin, by the way, is not technically in the desire itself. The sin is in the distortion of the desire. So much sin actually begins with a perfectly good desire that gets corrupted, whether it's a desire for hunger or a desire for work to provide yourself, which then gives way to greed and pride, or a desire for warmth and clothing, which gives, gives way to vanity, or a desire for sex, which gives way to adultery or fornication, a desire for accomplishment or creativity. All of those things give way to other things which are corruptions. It gets distorted. It begins maybe by seeking Out exactly what you have been designed for in your humanity before God but once the mind allows those desires to operate without subjection to Christ they begin to grow in a distorted way like an implanted egg in the womb of your mind they grow like a baby inside it eventually wants to get out And James says when it does that, it gives birth to sin. And when sin grows, James says when it fully grows, its purpose is to kill. It is a murderer. You have given birth to a murderer. And it brings forth death. So again, the key, if you want to have victory over temptations is to submit those daily desires to Christ. Never let them get corrupted, much less give birth and have all of their destructive force. This is where the battle is ultimately won, is understanding that you can trust all of your desires to God. In fact, this is where James goes in verse 16 and 17. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow or change. You have a desire for some gift or some accomplishment or something. You have to continually submit that desire to God with the firm conviction that He is good, that He will direct, that He will guide you on the pathway for the fulfillment of that desire in a way that is best. That he doesn't give anything that isn't good. And so you're constantly reorienting your thinking in, in relation to those desires to remind yourself that every desire that is submitted and yielded to God is fulfilled according to his law by him in good and perfect ways. Because all God's sins is good and perfect. All of this is really just a important, so important for us to understand in the battle with sin, but it also helps us understand what Jesus is teaching us back in that Sermon on the Mount, when he says, "Don't lead us into temptation. He's not talking about God tempting us." In fact, the Scripture tells us that while God doesn't tempt us, God does have control over our temptations, which is another important truth to understand in this prayer. 1 Corinthians ten thirteen: "...no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man." And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with, with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you may be able to endure it. So God doesn't tempt us, and yet God has the power, if you will. He has the, uh, uh, the restraining influence in His faithfulness to ensure that we're not put into a place where those desires within us can run so rampant as to utterly destroy us. And even when we have begun down that pathway, God provides a way of escape. God's always giving us invitations back to His perfect plan. God's always showing us a way where all of those desires submitted to Him can be fulfilled in a good and perfect and godly and healthy way. And so we understand from that verse that God, or I should say our temptations, if you will, our circumstances can be limited by God. God knows you as an individual, and he will not allow you to get into any kind of temptation that is more than you're able to handle at a given time in your life. So, far from leading us in temptation, into temptation, God's our way out of temptation. This petition then is kind of a plea, a plea for God to provide that for us, an appeal to God to do exactly what 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says He'll do, to provide us with the understanding, to provide us with the reminders, to show us how those desires that have become distorted in our minds can be realigned with Him, to Help us understand how they can be fulfilled according to His will, to show us a pathway we can pursue and walk down to find a life that's pleasing to him. Chrysostom, the early church father commenting on this verse says, "You know it's really not so much a theological statement really believing that God either leads or doesn't lead us into sin it, into sin. It's really just a cry of human weakness an expression ultimately of distrust in ourselves and our own resources, our own ability to overcome that which has defeated us over and over again. When we honestly look at the power of sin and all of its uh, propensities and we measure it against our own weakness and we shudder at the danger, this is just simply a cry for the mercy of God to help us in any way that He could. To overcome these temptations. Thankfully, the scripture says God is faithful. He's faithful. He will remain true to His own. So that when our faithfulness fails and when our faithfulness is tested, we have God's faithfulness as a resource. And we, be, we can be absolutely confident that He will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able. So that's His response. When we pray, do not lead us into temptation, that's God's response. He will not allow us to experience any test, any circumstance that's going to uh, so appeal to our inner desires that we won't be able to meet it and ultimately overcome it. So many, many useful elements that Jesus gives us here. As I said early on, this is not in Matthew 6. It's not an exhaustive list of everything that's included in prayer. But when we begin to really understand all that Jesus would have for us in prayer, it's hard for us to see that we could get away with any short, meaningless, repetitious prayer of the pagans that Jesus talked about earlier in Matthew chapter 6. In fact, this model prayer helps us to understand the call in our life for a deep, rich, devoted, faithful, and extensive prayer life so that we can experience all the blessings that God has for us through Christ Jesus. I pray the Lord would transform our minds and our hearts, our time together with Him by these very truths. If you're here this morning, you've heard the detrimental impact that sin has on your relationship with God. Some of you are here today and all you've ever known is a distant God, an angry God, a God whose condemnation lays on you, you resonate with what David talked about because it defines your life. Guilt pressing on you every day. I want to challenge you with this question. Have you ever known the judicial forgiveness of God? Are you confident that if you stood before Him today as your judge, that He would say there's no condemnation for you? If you're not confident of that, Christ offers forgiveness through the gospel. Scripture says that when we place our trust in Him, He forgives us of all of our sins. Christ becomes our Savior and our Lord. I challenge you today, if you've never experienced that, that you would cry out to the Lord, that you would confess your sin to Him and ask God for His mercy. He'll receive you. Every prayer, those who call on the name of the Lord, he says, will be saved. Father, we're so grateful for the reminders, for the challenges, for the model in this prayer. We pray, Father, that you would help us to really embrace it, to model it in our own life, to become faithful, effectual, fervent and honoring to you in the way that we pray. Lord, we, you taught us this prayer for a reason. Not to be ignored, but to be embraced. And we hear it, Lord, we yield ourselves to it. Be honored in our prayer life, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.